Today I welcome Paul Dwyer, head at Red Maids High School in the UK. In this episode, we challenge future school thinking, subjects versus skills. Will teaching follow the workplace and go hybrid? GCSE reform and how to challenge history. I'm always talking about the future of education, how we can improve what is offered to students. How restricted are schools because of the current education system here in the UK? I mean, you'd look at any well-meaning school if you were to say, look, we want to give you the trust to do what you do best. We want you to give you opportunities to instill into students, you know, whether it's guiding principles, the values, and indeed the skills to, to succeed in later in life. Everyone has a thousand ideas about what that could look like. And, and indeed, I've got very powerful ideas, but it will always come back to year nine, year 10, particularly year 10 and 11, just that attritional nature of GCSEs. You know, you've got a, an amount of content you've got to get through. You've got 26 exams a student will sit when they're 16 years old. And, and that will only ever be a kind of the guiding lights for that element of, of education. So we absolutely, and I think the independent sector have got more opportunities to take a sideways look at that or to say, well, how do we approach life in the classroom that means good results or good outcomes for students are a byproduct of how we approach these things, but you've still got to cover the content. You've still got to get, you know, the, the kind of the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted and that automatically constrains you. And again, what gets interesting in where the independent sector could be braver, but is also, I suppose, constrained by your own forces. If you consider, you know, I'm, I'm based in Bristol, there are, there are seven independent schools. And when I talk to the other heads, I think there is an appetite for saying, look, let's be bold on this kind of thing. But no one also wants to be the first school to make that change because, of course, then, you know, if you have people not getting on board with it, if people are worried because they don't have the safety net of, of GCSE qualifications, and, and of course, that's understandable, that that's what parents and students ultimately want at this moment in time. To step out of that is to take the risk that might not then be, uh, you know, seen as the reward in the, in the shorter term. So I think we could be braver. I think it needs coordination properly with ourselves and, and saying, look, in the independent sector, even if we say that we're coordinating with one another, there's always that background of competition that I think we still need to get past because we are here for the education of our local area. We are here for the education of, of young people. And that competitive element, I think, could be put to better uses sometimes without trying to be on too high horse about it. There is that, that side of the independent education, which is, I mean, you're, you have to drive revenue and admissions to pay salaries and to be a sustainable, self-fulfilling school anyway. So that in itself is problems when you don't want to share best practice because you don't want to give edges. It is about being brave. You know, we're trying to teach our children about failure. You know, failure is a normal thing. It happens to every single one of us every single year in life. And, you know, if everything is easy and we don't want to be brave, you know, are we really creating these change makers or shooting these young men and women to be change makers, to believe they can bring change? I mean, you look at some of their role models. I mean, Elon Musk is one, you know, he's, he's a flawed genius in his own right, but that comes with challenges that he's come with to ensure that his idea and how he wanted to change the future for the good has manifested itself and there'll always be detractors. So why is there a hierarchy of subjects in the system rather than a hierarchy of skills? It's because subjects are easier to define. You know, if, if we say, look, you know, we want to teach teamwork, we want to teach collaboration, we want to teach resilience. It's hard to actually, even if you agree with that as a principle of, of what education should be based around, starting to put that into the reality of, okay, what does that look like in a classroom setting? What does that mean in terms of the person 
facilitating that lesson, whether you, you know, the teacher of a subject or, or what those kind of things look like. So I think there's always that element of ambiguity that, you know, teaching skills has. And I think that there's also sometimes, and I, I felt this, I mean, Twitter's a fascinating place in so many ways in this debate, but I think people see it too much as a dichotomy between the two. You know, you cannot, you know, if you teach history well, my subjects, that absolutely can bring out aspects of teamwork, that can bring out aspects of, of collaboration and, and all of those kind of skills that we want to develop in. I think the hierarchy of subjects is obviously historical in itself. You know, this has stood the test of time in many people's eyes and so therefore attracts, you know, attracts because it has worked and so why seek to change it now? I think part of the dynamic is, you know, it's, it's not the hierarchy of subjects, it's the hierarchy of knowledge that I think we still need to have a conversation about actually. When I was at university, I particularly focused on medieval history and 19th century American history. And I'm a history teacher, so I have been employed because of my skills in history to some degree. But there are very few jobs that I'm going to go to when people are saying, well, I want you specifically because your knowledge of the 12th century papal reform movement. That's something that I've enjoyed building and has happened to build skills in me. And I think where we still have a degree of, dare I say, snobbery, or there's still a conversation for us to have around hierarchy of knowledge is they'll... The skills I built looking at the papacy in the 12th century, you could adequately build in the same way, looking at the, I don't know, the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola, you know, and actually saying, well, I'm still taking information and synthesizing it. I am trying to come to a, a conclusion based on evidence. And so does the subject matter itself, you know, actually matter as much as we sometimes say? Now, that is arguably too glib a point in that, it's important to have the stories of the past. It's important to have, you know, cultural capital, as, as people have started to call it now. Yes, but again, we still get mixed up on what that capital is. You know, what is it that we value as knowledge and, and why do we value other than just because we do and because we always have? And that's where I think the conversation is missing. So it's not skills versus of subjects. It's actually the kind of knowledge that we want to deliver and, and what we value as important and why. The skills you're looking for, I mean, creativity, problem solving, critical thinking often come in the top five of skills that the World Economic Forum put out there in their five-year predictions, having spoken to industry. None of that says, you know, you, you need to learn about, you know, 19th century history. Or you need to learn about the Tudors down at year five. These are knowledge-based things that are of the past. Surely we should be building cross-curriculum skills, problem solving. Imagine them going and solving a real-world problem. I think even with history, can't you? almost predict the future as part of history. Again, I've not even gone down this route before, but I'm just thinking about what you're saying about you, you learn about the past and how that maybe influences what the future, but there's a huge amount of change going on right now. And actually getting the kids to go, actually, how do you think history may play out? Right now, there's a huge amount of, of change going on in the world that we have never seen. You know, the Ukraine crisis, we've suddenly got this, this whole levy on gas prices, utilities and services, all of this stuff going on. Isn't that more of a, a relevancy to go, okay, how do we bring what we know in the past? Let's look what's here. Now let's look at all these other issues. How do we think this could play out? What are the roles? Good history teachers will often try and contextualize historical events through a, a current affairs lens. Not always, but of course, you know, what we're always trying to get students to understand is the world around us now and, and where that came from. So, you know, you cannot look at, say, the tearing down of the statue of Edward Colston, you know, as a result of the Black Lives Matter protest in, in 2020, you know, you can't understand that without understanding, you know, the nature of colonial history about why Colston is a controversial figure and about that nature of debate. So I think how you frame it is always going to be important, whether it's in a history lesson or current affairs, you know, 
you could even be getting into just kind of semantics of how you kind of tie these things together. Because for me, you mentioned polarization earlier, for example, polarization is something that our students are very worried about. You know, they see the nature of the debates around them. They see, you know, different um, labels thrown around, you know, woke and cancel culture and all of these things that I think are, you know, highly problematic for trying to stifle debates on, on either side, really. But again, what I try to get them to appreciate in that historical context is, you know, polarization isn't necessarily something new. You look at 1960s America, you look at the nature of the segregation debate and actually, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, how much more polarized do you think you can get if you've, you know, <laughs> compared to a society that says, you know, these people do not have value, they do not have worth, we do not recognize them. So it's not to try and add an artificial optimism into students to say things always get better, but to say, look, there are examples from the past we can learn on, we can pick in from and saying, what are the lessons we can pick from there? And it is often that, you know, there's been brave people who've stood up to say no more and, and we want to change things. And there's also been, you know, more bland kind of bureaucratic processes that are sometimes also worthy of looking at in terms of, you know, how these things actually get over the line, whether that's Supreme Court decisions, whether that is, you know, the nature of the legislative process, you know, so it's as much watching how the sausage gets made as as much as it is, you know, recognizing the importance of, of voices that have, have stood up in the past in, in so many ways. You used the, the example of the Colston statue in Bristol. I worry that we have a woke generation. I really dislike the term woke, but it just seems to be constantly reused. Surely we shouldn't be rewrite, trying to rewrite history. But history's happened. It's written. Isn't there a distinction between whether or not we have to celebrate parts of history the way that our forefathers and decades before did? And that's us re-understanding it in context of where we are today and going, actually, because we just take it for granted. No one probably knew that statue, what it meant, apart from suddenly, you know, those that were learned that would go into it and go, actually, this, this doesn't sit right with what we should be doing so kind of a conflict between us not trying to rewrite history it's happened and then whether or not we celebrate it in the way that previous generations did woke is the latest kind of label that's attached to a younger generation by an an older generation that is having trouble being challenged you know again you look at the 1968 sit-ins in europe and uk and in usa you know you look at uh, counterculture of the 70s and 80s you know these things have always happened we've always labeled that younger generation with with different things about you know whether that's been hippies or whatever you know and, and we get older and find it problematic when the younger generation say actually we're not sure how you're running the place and we don't like this and i think that's something that we just need to recognize better rather than labeling it and, and put them in a box in a patronizing fashion the point on statues is, is a fascinating one because you know I can appreciate there is that kind of level of where does one draw the line, you know, and if you were to say down a Colston statue, there's arguments to say, well, you know, people would advocate taking down a Churchill statue because you look at, you know, the, the Bengal famine, you look at the issues of legacy in, in India and other colonial aspects. So I don't know an obvious answer for what the statue conversation looks like. I quite like Lewis Goodall, the reporter, I think had a, a reasonable view on this in terms of you know, when you look at statues about what should stay and what should go, and, and let's be fair, other countries have this conversation. You don't go to Germany and there's, you know, statues of very problematic politicians from their past, you know. And, and again, these are conversations I think we can have without it being as heightened. But, you know, Goodall's point was that if the statue is built for someone whose main reason for celebration was not due to, you know, highly problematic behavior, whether that's involved in slavery and, and colonial things, then, you know, even if you have context built around them that, that those statues should stay for someone like Colston, where their legacy was slavery. He was a 
a rich person and could be philanthropic because he was a slave owner, then they are the statues perhaps to take down because they are just celebrating someone who, who owned people. So again, if I were to subscribe to a, a kind of an easy solution to a difficult problem, that would probably be in the, the vein of it. I don't think we're rewriting the past. I think, you know, the past is always being rewritten. We're always reevaluating our, our sense of how we view the, the years that have gone, the nation that we were, the people that came from us. So I think it's only right that we continue to, to have these debates. And I think it'd be more problematic to say the past is immutable. These statues have always been up. And so they must always stay up because they have always stayed up. You know, that's not debate. That's not conversation. And I think that's where, again, we sometimes seen it as too many binary terms. You know, the past was reevaluated in the 50s. It was reevaluated in the 1850s. That's, that's the nature of our job and what we do. So again, those who seek to protect it, I dare say doing so for the right reasons, but I think sometimes hold on to things for the wrong reasons and just cast aspersions saying, well, we're rewriting the past and that's a bad thing. And again, that's not having any nuance to debate, is it? Yeah, and we want our children to challenge this. We want them to think on their own to not expect, oh, this is what my parents did, this is what, the, what my grandparents did, this is okay. Because you know, well, our legacy isn't necessarily the right legacy that we're leaving behind. We have made mistakes, we've aligned ourselves to things that maybe when we reflect back on them were the wrong things to align ourselves on, but it's for our kids to stand up and go, I'm gonna challenge this, I'm looking at it with a different way. I'm with you, I think it's great that, that we should be challenging for the right reasons. Because, you know, they are pushing sustainability, equal rights, you know, everything that was kind of a little bit taboo for a long time. They are just taking on. And I think it's brilliant. And I'm certainly learning a lot as a father of four as to what my, my kids kind of bring back, what they want to share with me. But also how I even look at myself as a, as a white middle-aged man, right? My innate biases that have been through nurture and environment, not necessarily because I believe them, but they are, they are there. And actually, how do I unlearn them? Quite difficult, but how can I learn to deal with them? So I'm not being lazy and, and this, this sense of unconscious bias that we see. But I want to get you back onto the future school. If you were to look into your crystal ball and you were to rewrite the timetable in 10 years, which subjects would you expect to see on there? And which ones would go? <laughs> Big question. And I'm hoping that, you know, I'm not taking for gospel here in terms of uh, any heads departments who might listen and think, oh, gosh, now I've got to justify myself. If I go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the cross-disciplinary aspect, I think there's more room for exploring that angle, really. So I don't anticipate there'll be enormous changes to suddenly something we don't teach or expose our students to that we, we currently have. But I think there's ways in which we can join up dots between subjects better. So We've got a new curriculum area that we're rolling out next year, which is a, it's a joining up of computer science and product design, and we're calling it creative technologies. You know, so this is recognizing the nature of, I suppose, modular design as we go forward in things like the aviation industry, or we look at the nature of, of sustainability, as, as you mentioned a second ago. So how do we help students to appreciate the overlap between the on-screen programming angles of this, and then also the practical hands-on, whether that's 3D printers, whether that's, you know, laser cutters, you know, getting to grips with things that then speak to one another. So I think there'll be more room for subjects like that and saying, right, okay, what is the obvious overlap between subjects without trying to, well, without trying to ignore the constraints of, of curriculum we mentioned earlier, but also without trying to lose the essence of, of subject areas that we, we will still feel is important. So I think that there could be conversations around, um, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, people have proposed things like, um, digital humanities or, or things in those veins. So 
getting to greater grips with the ethics around artificial intelligence or around how we make decisions, you know, in a more computer-oriented world. And again, I think that might be then a larger part of what you know schools currently teach in their philosophy and ethics curriculum, rather than saying, well, we're no longer going to teach philosophy and ethics full stop, because half of those ideas you can't consider ethics without considering Aristotle or Kant or whomever it may well be. So you're still going to have to give them that grounding, but allow them to see it in a modern day context. So I think there's room for manoeuvre in those areas. In a similar vein, I'd like to see schools teaching linguistics well, you know, so actually the essence of language and building up from that angle and, and how it evolves and changes, because that would still have profound consequences or profound helps for subjects like modern foreign languages for English. And so I think it's identifying the spaces in between areas rather than saying there's, you know, haves and have nots going forward. But maybe that's an easy way for me to sit on a fence about it in terms of identifying subjects that, you know, might not be on the curriculum in 10 years time. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Interestingly, there's a lot of schools that are doing internships, but like proper internships, not just go and do like a week's work experience, which it feels like a tick box rather than it being a, a useful exercise for the pupil, is they, they go out and they do six-week internships or they do six-week projects working with the local community. There's one in Upper Manhattan. They go in and they solve real-world problems and they can look then at history, the geography of it all, the economics of it all. They get in math, they get in the sciences, they get the creative side. That surely is what we've got to be moving towards where actually all of those skills that you'll learn across subjects can be brought into modern day or a real life situation, you know, helping the community, giving back the service. These kids have access to so much information. There's a YouTube video on everything that they can find. So there are a lot of people are self-taught. I'm self-taught on certain things because where do I go? I'm sure some person on the planet's already done a YouTube instruction video about how do I fix this particular thing that I didn't know I, that I had. So maybe that's something of food for thought. But again, when we come back to the way that the UK education market is structured, it becomes very difficult unless we go through big reform. Do you feel that there's, that there's enough momentum and enough support for GCSE reform? I think among schools there would be, but I think you've got this, again, this interesting dichotomy between most school leaders... I would say, are open to the idea of having a change, where they sit on the spectrum between completely reading of GCSEs and, and changing what we've got will, will always be an open-ended question. But school leaders are also pragmatists. I think there's many people for whom they'd say, well, if I felt there was any prospect of there being change, I'd probably campaign for it to be harder and, and, and you know, to make sure that, that was, was front and centre. But ultimately, there's, there's no indication at all, really, from the government that, that they'd be open to that kind of agenda. And so what's kind of the point? And, and I need to be getting the best I can out of the current system we have. So, you know, I, I'm involved in the GSA kind of um, working group looking at the future of education, particularly around assessments. HMC have got the same thing going on. And there's, there's an overlap between the two. And yeah, I think there's, there's really exciting ideas out there for what could happen. There's already good models out there for what you could put in place in the drag and drop sense. You know, the, the IBMYP diploma, you know, is, is probably as, as good a model as you would want to have without the kind of assessment in a terminal sense at the end of, of year 10. Heck, even, you know, what BDLs have got in place, you know, you've, you get the core GCSEs and then your schools-based courses. It takes bravery in those instances because you've got to bring your parent community along. You've got to sell people on that and you've got to have the resource to put them in place. So 
I think on a national basis, most school leaders would like to see some thought around GCSE. Most aren't particularly pushing that door because they don't think it's an open one to bother for expending the energy on it. Yeah, and it's how much energy, but it, it does require that, that effort and that collective push to drive real change because we can all talk about it. We've all got ideas, but you've then got to look at employers and employers going, look, I don't really care about what university degree you've got. In fact, I don't even care if you've got a university degree anymore. And it comes back to then, you know, I just care about you. And so it's then questioning the purpose of schools because you're stuck in this conveyor belt between GCSEs. And then we get on to, to the A-levels, which is a good academically rigorous kind of process that, you know, or teaching model that's well-respected around the world. But that in itself is still quite limited, you know, and for some kids, they don't get to do the subjects they want to do. I mean, we've had to move my children between schools because of interests, right? And I had four kids at four schools at one point because it just fitted with the child because it's convenient for them all to go to here because they can all go to here, but they weren't thriving. When we kind of look at what employers or what the world is, is wanting, surely that should be the, the catalyst for change for us to go, we can't keep caring about the A-levels, we can't keep caring about league tables. But then we're tied with parents because I'm stuck in there going, son, you're doing A-levels, it's all I know. You've got to work hard because this, I know this is going to unlock something. You know, don't listen to me because you know, that it's not, not going to count for anything because it may count for something. How do we change that bit? I think it's employers being more open and upfront about you know, what they're employing on the basis of and what they're expecting to see, because I'm not sure I'd necessarily share your view that lots of employers aren't that bothered about, say, GCSE and A-levels. There's a number of you know, particularly big tech firms and, and people involved in that sector who would be more open on that front. But a lot of the time, you know, and, and particularly in an, in, a, in an era where, you know, jobs are getting increasingly competitive in certain fields, those differentiators will still come down to, in, in many instances, GCSEs, A-levels and, and grades, or indeed the, the university degree. So getting a sense, whether it's an audit or not, from employers about what is it they're actually looking for? You know, what are they quantifying? How many are actually taking in-house now their own version of, of the recruitment process? So it's actually how you do on the in-house and, and aptitude test and, and that provision. And that's it, you know, and more openness from that would allow the, the conversation to change within schools and say, well, actually, we're all running towards something that we all agree doesn't quite have the same purpose that we thought it did. I think there's also, I suppose, again, part of that debate needs to be what do we, what do we able to see the purpose of education? Are we setting students up with a sense of, you know, a love of learning, the idea of enjoying subjects for their own sake? And then, you know, comfortable in their own skin so they can make a, a range of decisions around careers. And then it's, it's on employers to train them up in those areas in terms of the specific skills they're looking for. Or do we see that schools are a pipeline into the workplace, in which case, obviously, that's part of the dynamic that needs to be encountered for. And again, I think we still treat that as a bit of a taboo because it is a politicized subject, isn't it? You know, in terms of, uh, you know, what the nature of schools are for and, and ultimately who we're setting them up for. Yeah, the Susskind's wrote a book, The Future of the Professions. I don't know if you've, you, you've read it. But again, it just challenged, obviously, the, the standard you know, professions that you get from your careers, library, really. You know, teacher, lawyer, doctor, accountant. And arguably, there are some there that require you to, to go off and learn and, and learn your craft very well. You know, doctors, I think, being top of that. What about when we start to think about teachers? Because, again... We've all been thrown into remote working the last few years because of a forced lockdown. Technology has been the enabler that's allowed us to continue, which pre that we would have fallen on our, on our knees. 
we've now gone back to work and it's the workplace is a hybrid model. I cannot offer as an employee, I cannot be competitive by saying you have to be in an office. And now I'm choosing from a workforce that is around the world, not just within a radius that can commute to my offices. With all that change, does there need to be any change within schools? And how do you see the future of the teaching profession? Will it go more remote and online or hybrid? Or are we stuck with sending kids to school? I think the foreseeable, we probably are, you know, expecting to have students in classrooms with a teacher in front of them. And again, that ties into that, that wider educational debate of what do people ultimately see schools being for and, and how does that change and adapt? Again, we've had some work done this year. So we've, we've had two colleagues doing a bit of a research project on, on flexible working in schools and, and precisely recognizing that for many of the colleagues here, their partners, their family members, people they are friends with, are, you know, moving into a more hybrid working environment, you know, that they're at home much more and they're around the place and, and schools are, are not, you know. And, and so it's to try and, and, and think and consider what schools can do on that basis. And they range from reasonably low hanging fruits that we're, we're giving some consideration to. So just where staff spend their directed time, do they need to be in school? And then that side of thing, which I think most schools are going to have to consider seriously in the next two years at, at the very least. So then more radical suggestions that, you know, if education could move this way more generally, you know, you'd have an interesting conversation to have, you know, should the school day shift, should we be 10 till five and actually offer more in that vein and have overlapping timetables then? So some staff who might be working, you know, nine doing prep work up until say, I don't know, one or two, and then some who come in at say 10 or 11 and go through till five or six. And I think there's power in that as yourself, as a, as a father and me as a father, you know, knowing that my children were going to schools that had different start times, different times and, and, you know, there might even be times when there's not a teacher in front of them physically, there's a cover coordinator, and actually the, the teacher is on screen, you know, there's shibboleths there that we as parents would need to test ourselves on. And I think that, you know, I wonder, and I've said this to a couple of colleagues and indeed some friends, after the first lockdown, I think there was a real appetite in a lot of areas to have some significant change and some meaningful debates on, you know, what life could look like learning from this seismic event. I think by the time third lockdown came around, I think we were all just so fatigued just wanting to get back to normal. You know, I think that moment to some degree has been lost and the momentum isn't there now because we just want to be in the rooms together. We just want to be, you know, recognizing what 2019 felt like and everything else, you know, can come at a further stage. So I think we need to pick our battles and saying, right, what do we want to emphasize here in a school setting? What do we want to set as, you know, this is what it means to be a teacher, you know, and that's what the purpose conversation is about. But also as school leaders being pragmatic and saying, look, if we're banging our head against the wall every year now saying, that, why aren't people coming to work here? Or why are our staff unhappy? Well, that's when we do need to reconsider, you know, because it's like the principal Skinner's meme from The Simpsons, you know, it's, it's not the children that are wrong, it's me, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? And, and we just need to be open-minded to that. Yeah, the lockdown was this petri dish of experimentation and, you know, we were thrust there and we got back to being humans where we, we were, you know, back against the wall, how do we survive? right? That was it. It was, it was basic need. I completely agree with you. I think technology has a place, but you know, I've always talked about the power of humans when I do my future school presentations about what it could look like. We always lead with technology. And it's, to me, it's, it's the worst thing we should ever lead with. Technology is an enabler. You, know, you as a history teacher will bring in, his, like, bring in technology to help give the kids a deeper experience on what history was like. And there's some great VR stuff. There's great content that's available 
but you shouldn't be led by it. And you know, I find too many schools are led by technology because it's here, we should do it. We've got to be seen as forward thinking because technology mark or label becomes the driving marketing force that says we should do this. But it's the humans, right? We all know that we get on better together, but they're still looking at possibilities about how we could use technology for the greater education good. And that's why I think that independent schools should step up and go, this isn't just about local support and outreach and partnerships with, within a radius because you've got state sector schools. I think we've got a greater need and position to be able to educate everyone in the world. I want to come and listen to you, Paul, just do an inspiring session on 19th century American politics or history. You know, if you were the guy for that, that's actually everybody. Imagine you capturing that piece of content and going, you know what, anyone in the world, if you're interested in it, this is the guy you've got to go to. And that, to me, then you become this pick and mix almost world. It's like a different version on a MOOC where you can start to kind of access really good content to be inspired because let's face it, not every teacher is inspiring. So how do we bring the inspirers, almost like the, I call them the super teachers. They're like the Instagrammers or the YouTubers that you just go, wow, I hated chemistry, but now I get chemistry and I like this guy teaching me chemistry. Maybe that's how we've got to slowly get back into it is by going, why don't we choose some pockets of it, go out there and share it with the world. Imagine that across the GSA that you're working with all of those girls' schools, suddenly you choose all the different subjects and go, do you know what? As a collective, why don't we offer this? And it's just going to be one inspiring lesson by every single school that's there. It's a start point. It's one hour. You mentioned MOOCs a second ago, and I wonder if that, again, it's a lovely idea that, you know, people jumped into, got burned by, and as much as, you know, people as humans will want to do, you know, don't complete them. You know, my Coursera app is a litany of just, you know, half-started courses that I never completed. And actually, as schools potentially played with MOOCs like the, you know, Americans play with the metric system, you know, it's like kind of just see it over there. It's something to touch, but not really get involved with. And again, maybe there is something about teachers, the role that they might play in 10, 15, 20 years time is about curation, you know, in a way that they already are doing, but it's actually that curation of content, that careful consideration of the sources that they're selecting, and rather those being drawn from textbooks and worksheets and things like that, it's then about, you know, the teachers that they might draw upon in different parts of the world or the ways in which they might build expertise in other areas. So I can, I can absolutely see that's the direction that schools go in, which builds on what MOOCs were trying to be, but inserts the person back into them. So rather than just saying to students, you know, here's a list of courses to do at your own time, saying, well, we're going to work through this together. I'm going to curate the content. There will be still that differentiation based on, you know, interests. And that's where the power is. Yeah. And also then is that flexibility with different children, because there were some of the kids that absolutely thrived in lockdown. They enjoyed the independence, the freedom. They didn't like being in a class setting so much, but they enjoyed doing it. And they, they stepped up. The others who were very good at being in in-person kind of uh, learners found it more difficult. So there's always this balance. And I think it's moving towards a personalized view where how can we fit it to the child, which is challenging because, you know, with so many children at every single school, it becomes difficult. But we can do it with careful planning and ambition and drive. Paul, thanks ever so much for uh, taking the time to join me on the Inspiring Schools podcast. I look forward to collaborating and sharing more ideas with you in the future. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.